3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June, and this year we're asking you to be part of community-powered radio. It's only with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled, and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. 3CR Community Powered Radio. everybody, you're listening to Chronically Chilled on 3CR. My name is Mario Pojiga. Uh, today I am joined by my co-host Naomi Cheney. Naomi, we're in lockdown again. How are you going? We are. I'm, uh, I think I said this during the last lockdown as well, but being chronically ill, it really doesn't feel like it's much different to my normal kind of schedule mm. uh, of not leaving the house. So I'm sort of, I'm more aware of it, how it impacts other people, I guess, than, than how it impacts me. So I'm doing all right. How are you doing, Mary? I'm all right. This is the first lockdown I think um, we've had where I actually haven't already been in lockdown. So I've actually started working recently and stuff. So it's all a bit kind of weird going back there again. Um, Yeah, yeah, it's going Uh, because you you were like literally in hospital, weren't you, the last time around? And recovering and not really doing very much and all that stuff. So um, yeah, yeah. yeah, So this is a bit of a different experience for you. So that, and I think kind of we've just gotten used to it in, in Victoria, hey? Yeah, there's a bit of that. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to introduce our guest now. Joining us today is Kristen O'Connell. Kristen is a spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and also the Anti-Poverty Centre. Kristen, how are you? Uh, I'm doing okay. I'm very lucky to not be locked down. So I'm sending uh, all of my positive vibes to you and to all, all the folks in Melbourne there. Hopefully it's a very brief one. We're hoping so too. Thank you. Fingers crossed, um, yep. Yep. Um, so Kristen, I just thought I'd start by um, just asking, how did you even get how did you get involved in your campaigning work with the Australian Unemployed Workers Union? Um, and also now with also the Anti-Poverty Centre. Yeah, so actually I was very, very fortunate at the beginning of last year to, after a very long process, have my um claim for the disability support pension approved and also around the same time my NDIS uh, claim approved. So I had been pretty, I guess, just totally bereft of energy um, for the basically the year that it took to get through those processes and, you know, battling Centrelink and going through appeals and stuff really took it out of me. So I had no emotional energy or intellectual bandwidth to do anything useful and when I came out of that process I felt like you know I really needed something to do and I'd been seeing some of the work of the Unemployed Workers Union and was really impressed by it and I thought maybe there are people struggling through that DSP process and I could just uh, give some you know emotional support and encourage them to stick with it because I think persistence is really the main reason people get through DSP in my view. So I just put my hand up to do that Uh, and then the pandemic hit and things got really hectic really quickly and ended up stepping up and helping out 
um, with the media and communications work that the union has been known for, renowned for doing very well for quite a few years now with Jeremy Poxon before me in this job. Um, and the Anti-Poverty Centre kind of came out of that because what we realised is, you know, before there was a gap um, of an organisation that really represented and defended the rights and the interests of unemployed people and everyone on social security payments. And that's why the union exists. What we've kind of noticed or, or not noticed, but sort of decided over the last year is that there's also a really big gap in kind of bigger research and policy being done by people with lived experience specifically from that perspective. Um, and so we felt that we weren't being well represented by some of the think tanks and researchers that put stuff out there. We ourselves had worked with a few academics to give them input into their research process, given them that free labor and then not seen uh, the results of that. And that was a bit frustrating. So we thought we'll just do more free work. We'll just do this work ourselves. And that's what we'll be doing um, in the Anti-Poverty Center. So we're just getting kicked off now, but we've got some pretty big projects on the horizon that we're very excited about. So there's nothing quite like Centrelink to radicalise people um, when you have to access it yourself, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yep, yep. And I, you know, I um, grew up in a single parent family with my mum surviving on Centrelink payments for quite a bit of that time. So definitely the stress of living in the social security system or being dependent on it and like just having no money was something that's, you know, quite deeply ingrained in my DNA um, but I was very lucky because I in the intervening years have had some really good jobs and I haven't been in financial stress my entire life but definitely going back to Centrelink um, last year or in 2019 now I guess is when it first started for the first time since 2015 it really I have complex PTSD and things like dealing with Centrelink can really uh, put mm. strain on that and start to like trigger particularly when there are either gaslighting or actively lying about what's going on that makes it really hard to cope with and keep engaging with it because you know it can and did uh, for me many times which is why it took so long kind of trigger little breakdowns and stuff so yes Centrelink will uh, push people to the edge and then um, for many people that actually you know causes lots of um, mental health harm and physical harm too um, but for lots of us as well, we're getting very angry and we're getting very noisy. And that's why the Unemployed Workers Union has started, I think, to hopefully be noticed a bit more. I actually wonder, um, just the name Unemployed Workers Union with the word workers in there, has there been any discussion at all of maybe changing that? Because, I mean, as the DSP is a perfect example, a lot of people on that can't actually work. Um, is that a discussion that's been had at all? I know it's semantics, but I'm just curious. Yeah, I think um, it's it's really important semantics, actually. So there is an underlying um, philosophy to that, I suppose, because one of our arguments is that everybody is doing something of value. So whilst we might not be in the um, conventional labour market, or at the moment, wage labour doesn't recognise our skills and contributions. It doesn't mean we're not actually workers. Like very, very few people are completely incapable of working. Um, and work can include work that's being done in the home. Um, a very broad definition of caring labour includes those social interactions we have that provide support and care for the people around us. Um, just, yeah, taking mm. care of our day-to-day -day lives. And lots of people engage in their community, whether they're doing environmental stewardship, 
um, or going and volunteering. And all of those things are work and they're just not valued. And so that's the distinction that we make is that pretty much everyone's a worker. Um, yeah, yeah. And so all of us, d you know, deserve uh, to have our, our labour valued, even if it's not, you know, this is an argument that's been made for a long time about parenting as well. And we just see that in an even broader sense. Yeah, I remember um, I was doing a show once where we tried to figure out what the actual wage gap is um, between men and women based on the actual amount of work that we knew they were doing from the census, whether that was work in home or, you know, work at a job. And we actually figured out the, the wage gap is sort of closer to 50 cents in the dollar um, than, it, yeah, like it's just, it's actually a massive, massive gap if you take into account. And that's just the work that we know people are doing from the census okay. so it was yeah that was a really interesting exercise yeah and I, I also just wanted to add one thing as well Naomi on the, on the question you asked it just occurs to me that we also have like I think about 20,000 people working in Australian disability enterprises which is like mm, work is. yeah yeah yes and you know that's the kind of work where people are essentially being put into conventional workplaces, but they're being paid practically nothing. So there's so many intersections yeah. between all of our experiences as unwaged workers, unfairly waged workers, um, whether, you know, we're disabled, chronically ill, um, you know, even if people are older and out of the um, working age bracket, but are still doing things in their life, you know, all of us do do stuff. And um, I guess it's about making sure there's a basic, level of dignity um, and rights afforded to everyone absolutely yeah and and also when you think about it like the amount of disabled people that are on job seeker and aren't able to get onto mm. the dsp there's a belief there's this underlying belief in the government that everybody should be working anyway right that's right and so at the moment um of about 1.2 million people in job active about 300,000 of those are disabled and i would point out that that is the number of people that Centrelink has documentation saying that they're disabled. And obviously mm. lots of people on JobSeeker can't afford to get medical reports as well. So that's absolutely a low figure. Um, so yeah, you know, it's a huge proportion. And before the pandemic, the proportion of people who were disabled or chronically ill on payments was about 42%. So, you know, as you say, like it's the government's perception as well is that you have to be a conventional worker um, even if you're on the DSP, uh, you know, I've got like similar um, working credit arrangements or not working credit, but like I'm allowed to like work at a certain threshold before I get kicked off the DSP. And that threshold um, mm. in terms of money is not much different to people on JobSeeker. Although one, you know, I always talk about the DSP being a luxury, which is not really, you know, shouldn't really think about it that way, but it's hard when you it, compare it, it can, to JobSeeker. It can feel that way when you come from JobSeeker onto the DSP. Right. I remember I remember that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we have the luxury of being allowed to work for two years before we get kicked off our payments rather than 13 weeks. And that's like, I guess, one distinction that they make. But yeah, all of it's designed. People always say, oh, no wonder the government doesn't want people on the DSP because then they have to pay them for the rest of their life. And it's like, well, most people probably do want to do some kind of, earn some kind of income because the DSP is below the poverty line. Like it's not exactly, it's much better than job seeker, but it's not exactly like fun lifestyle. Um, so yeah, mm. that, there is so much complexity and so many kind of intersecting issues when we're thinking about work and labor and income and social security. 
So the Guardian mm. um, got their hands on a report this week that revealed the government reforms to the disability employment services increased the cost of the program by 48% in two years, yet the number of job seekers who found work only increased by 8%. So can you talk about what the government is doing with the employment services industry um, and what, what some of the experiences are of people that are forced to access them? So that report is really extraordinary and I think it's now been put out by the Department of Social Services and I would recommend, as boring as it is, that people go and read it. I've had a read. Um, it's fascinating document in lots of respects. It's probably the most um, useful document, I think, in exposing the huge flaws in the very ideologically driven employment services system that we now have in place. Um, job active and the disability employment service are both things I think as you mentioned Mario that you're forced to engage with um, in order to get either your unemployment payment if you're on youth allowance um, or on job seeker and if you're on the disability support pension and you're under 35 a lot of people don't realize that you will be forced to do mutual obligations if you're under 35 and mm. you know somehow when I turned 35 I magically became as disabled and now I don't have to deal with that anymore um, but yeah, it's essentially putting you in a situation where there's this privatised provider that is incentivised by the government to bully you, really. Like the social security law and the rules that have been set up around mutual obligations mean that they can't make money if they don't force people to do things that either have very little value, no value at all, or cause them harm. We've got programs, and fortunately people um, on the DSP aren't forced to do this, but hundreds of thousands of people on JobSeeker are forced to do things like work for the Dole um, or the Community Development Program, which fortunately is going to be coming to an end. That was recently announced. So you've got ways in which these providers make money include forcing people into those activities, right? Like the highest uh, payment at the moment, I think, in uh, Job Active is for putting people in work for the Dole. Um, the idea behind the changes that came in in 2018 to the Disability Employment Services was to deregulate increase the number of wage subsidies and get more employment outcomes and to set up these panels where job agencies and providers would be kind of determining a little bit who got contracts. I, I don't fully have my head around that bit yet. I've got to do more reading on it. But, you know, it kind of saw exactly what people, I think, expected, which is, yeah, the profits went up. We saw, I think, in one of those articles that Luke wrote that um, providers had been giving out free iPads to convince people to switch from either from job active to DS or to take up some of the voluntary um, options that became available in DS, which has a very, very small uptake. There are very few voluntary participants in DS because it is a brutal program. It does hurt people. And at the union, we hear very bad stories from people in DS, often far worse than what we hear from job active, which surprises people because they do think that surely mm. disability employment services is more caring. There are more qualified people, but there are not. And there are no. the same perverse <laughs> financial incentives. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, well, this is coming out in the Royal Commission at the moment when they've been when they've been talking about employment services and like this is this is Royal Commission into violence, abuse, neglect, and exploitation. And this, I mean, this is exploitation of of disabled people that's happening with these employment services. It's really really right. harsh. Yeah, they're extracting resources from us through government payments, and um, and again, it's it's like so unnecessary too, right? Because most of the people who are forced to do DES are on the job seeker payments not the disability support pension and wouldn't have to do mm -hmm. because the people who are over 35 they wouldn't have to do these obligations if they were on the DSP so it's the product of the fact that they're trapping disabled people on an unemployment payment 
that's why it exists at all because they realized yeah. they couldn't force people to operate with the same system um as yeah i mean there's still lots of disabled people in job active like it's it's all a mess honestly um but yeah, yeah it's employment services have essentially just been a way for the government to funnel money to its donors um to i guess yeah feed that ideal that everyone does have to be a very conventional worker and if you're not in a conventional job that you have to be doing some kind of busy work completely made up pointless work to justify your existence and to justify your social security payment because it would be it'd be a thing if like if there was a shortage of workers but that's not it's really not the case is it like we don't we don't actually yeah. need these jobs to be done as a society this is it's a completely pointless exercise that's literally just mm-hmm. there to punish people that's right it's true it's truly uh just for punishment we know that it's part of the government's policy to have hundreds of thousands if not millions of people who are in the labor force unemployed that is their choice they use unemployed people as an economic lever Um, and so whether we're disabled or not we're all part of that system and so if they're choosing to have us in this situation why would they also force you to kind of take on that um, or internalize that idea that it's your personal fault and personal responsibility for not having a job. Those jobs don't exist, and you're right, they don't need to exist. There are so many jobs already being done that don't need to exist. And with things like work for the dole and some of the wage subsidies that exist, like the PATH program, which is for young people, um, you've got actual work being done, and that work should be waged work. Like those people should be paid fairly. Um, if you're in work for the doll, you're getting about 42 cents an hour for that labor that you do if you do the 25 hours a week, which most people have to do. Um, and, you know, there was a kid called Josh Parking who died on a work for the doll site about five years ago. They were notoriously unsafe. Many people become disabled as a result of injury um, from those sites and then <laughs> have battles and often fail to get onto the DSP um, despite having injuries that um, mean they can't or can work very limited amounts for the rest of their life. And you also don't have work cover if you're on work for the doll. So there's just so many ways in which these programs are both unnecessarily punishing people and also meaning there are fewer real jobs anyway. Like it's just this awful cycle. Um, It's like feeding uh, the most disadvantaged people in the community into this machine um, that, yeah, they could achieve all of the neoliberal um, plans that they have, I think, without doing most of this stuff. They just really haven't you know, got it deeply ingrained that they just hate poor people and don't think we deserve any support. Yeah, it's interesting thinking back because when I first went on the DSP, so this is quite a few years ago now, but there was no there was no obligations at that time. I was sat down and I was told, you don't have to work if you don't want to. And I had a job and I intended to keep working. Um, so that wasn't necessarily a question for me. It was, it was just that I couldn't work a certain number of hours. So, so that's why I qualified for the DSP. Um, and then my, my work activity didn't change. Um, I, I still work now. Um, but there, yeah, there was that change that came in where suddenly I had to go in every six months and actually report to them on what my job activity was because suddenly it was compulsory and it was, um, it was something that they were going to be keeping track of. And just like literally nothing about my payment or my work had changed at all in that period but just the humiliating nature of those meetings where you've got to go in and justify your right to be able to have groceries and pay rent um it's very yeah I mean it does feel like you feel the hate of poor people when they bring in those those kind of regulations it's it's an interesting it's a psychological thing it really is 
there's a history of government, you know, implementing really punitive policy on those that are most marginalised and testing kind of things out. And I'm kind of thinking I'm, I, there's a lot of crossover now that's starting to happen between what they've done with the Centrelink space and now with the NDIS around the robo tracking yeah. and, you know, a lot of the kind of making accessibility really difficult, you know, things like that. And, you know, I'm also in the community services sector and kind of that idea of the privatisation of care, kind of I also wonder whether that's another kind of the next step around all of this kind of stuff as well. So I think this is all kind of linked. You know, I, I think this is something that everybody should be worrying about or should be caring about. Well, yeah, I mean, literally independent assessments, they really tested that out with Centrelink. Mm. That's that's what they do now. They they do, you know, you used to be able to just get your doctor's report, but then suddenly they wanted you to have, a, you know, one of their doctors had to check it. And it really is like, I mean, I've been through that review process where another doctor checked over my doctor's notes and it was literally just a, a checklist to make sure you'd use the right key phrases. It wasn't actually, that doctor knew nothing about my condition. They knew nothing, mm. you know, they, they passed it because the, my, my actual doctor used the right phrases and it really is a box ticking exercise. But if your doctor doesn't know what the key phrases are and just reports on your medical condition as, you know, as they see fit without sort of knowing how to fit it into the system. Like a lot of people who need the DSP don't get on the DSP because of this independent assessment system. And now that, yeah, they've tested it out here and now they're taking it to the NDIS because it saved the money. It worked. It saved the money. (laughs) That's right. And so those, there were changes that uh, were brought in um, by the Gillard government to, I'm sure Mm. you might be familiar already with the impairment tables and yes, that yep. is part of what drove that, right? Because if you didn't have the right language, they couldn't put you in a box to give you a score that would add up to the number of points that you needed to qualify for the DSP. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I was super lucky too that my doctors had supported other people to um, access the DSP and were just knew, yeah, how to write the report. But when I went for that assessment, I was so lucky the doctor was like, I'm not here to deny you the DSP. I'm literally just here to like see you, see these documents, make sure it all adds up, don't stress about this process. And I was so grateful for that because it had just triggered so much anxiety in me having to go and do that. But there was a more, this might have already been in place while you were on the DSP, Naomi, a more substantive independent assessment process several years ago for DSP recipients. And it was a costly disaster. And so they got rid of it because they couldn't find people scamming the system and they were spending extraordinary amounts of money trying to do it. And uh, like, you know, obviously we're seeing already with this trial they've done with the independent assessments that it's just pointless. Like there's no one qualified. My diagnosis took, ultimately it really took like several years, but they're like the, getting the piece of paper. So I have autism level two and just that process of getting the right uh, diagnosis on that took six months. So like, how am I going to mm. walk into a room and give someone the information that that specialist doctor needed to be able to reach that conclusion and to confidently reach that conclusion you know it was really important in in that one um, meeting yeah that's right (laughs) it takes literally 15 minutes I was in that meeting for 15 minutes exactly exactly so it's just absurd you know I I literally gave up on the DSP um, which is what they want you to do but I just couldn't do it that's exactly right yeah yeah Um, Yeah. but I know that AUWU you guys have gone to Canberra to advocate um, and this just seems like an area that's depressingly bipartisan in a lot of ways. Um, do you know? Do you think there's any support in Parliament at all for kind of reform in this area? Or so we have been very, very frustrated trying to get commitments from the Labor Party around rates, 
um, and, you know, just generally agreeing that the government shouldn't force people in this country to live in poverty. Um, so we have been very frustrated by that. With some other parts of the system, it's been just slightly more positive. So we have had meetings with a number of Labor MPs and their staffers around willingness to look at these mutual obligations and to, you know, start thinking about how they could be made more humane. They are not yet with us on abolishing um, conditionality altogether. So our, we believe that everyone who wants access to employment services should have it and that it should be voluntary and that they should be good quality, useful services and that they should be run by public servants. Um, so that's what we're arguing for. The Labor Party still thinks you should be forced to engage with the system, um, but they may mm -hmm. be willing to kind of make those things less punitive uh, or potentially to do bring more of it maybe into the public service. So it's not, there's not no hope on that front, but certainly it's not like they're not excited about it, right? Like this isn't their biggest priority, which is why we have to do things like go and get in their face and put pressure on them. And not only do that, again, the Antipody Research Centre, we know they're not going to do the work. So we're going to go and do the work and say, look, we have found these things. We've worked with these academics. We've worked with these communities. And here, you have a plan now. So you don't need to come up with your own plan. We know you're not going to do that because it's not important enough for you. But if we give them those tools and we keep that pressure on, we may see some movement. We've also met with people like Bridget Archer, who is a member of the Liberal Party and does not support the current mutual obligations regime. Bridget Archer is one of the few people in Parliament who has lived on social security payments. And she's from northern Tasmania, where there's an extremely high proportion of the population who are unemployed. Um, and she understands that it makes no sense. It's a waste of money and it hurts people. Um, so, that, you know, there is certainly a little bit, a sliver of hope on mutual obligations. It is uh, much harder to see optimism when it comes to having livable income rates because the fact that the government got away with giving such a tiny so-called increase, which, by the way, people are further below the poverty line now, than they were last February because the poverty line has increased more wow. than that $50. Yeah. So wow. the poverty line went up about $5 a day between March and September last year. And the payment change from February last year to now for JobSeeker is about oh, $3 a day. So it's, you know, you're still worse off if you're thinking about what your money can actually get you than you were before the pandemic. Um, so the fact that they've gotten away with that and they've been able to sell it as the largest increase, obviously we know disabled folks didn't get anything if we're on the DSP. Um, yep. <laughs> they not only didn't give us anything in terms of that change, they also didn't give us anything during the pandemic when for most disabled people there were extraordinary changes in costs due to ability to access supports that we needed and all that kind of stuff. We saw nothing from the Labor Party on that. We saw nothing from the Labor Party. Like they, they supported this legislation in, in February that, essentially cut the rate at the time um, and they've also been unwilling to say what they do think is appropriate so yeah it's it's really vexed and quite depressing um, but we seem to be building support in the community and getting support in other parts of the political sphere whether it's in the community sector um, you know through other researchers and so forth so oh, it's a long hard battle um, we'll just keep fighting it I guess they got away with just a tiny little bit of an increase, but they also made it really, really hard in terms of mutual obligations and all that kind of stuff as well, right? They made some changes to mutual obligations, so you will people will be required to do work for the dolls sooner. Um, but things like they announced, like the Dob Seeker line, where mm. employers can report you, um, there's not a huge 
change to the rules there. There's not really a change to the rules at all. All of the things you can get reported for are things you already could be penalised for. They've just created a PR exercise to make it look, give the perception to the broader public that they're cracking down on all these bad uh, people who are exploiting the welfare system because they need to make it seem like everyone's doing the wrong thing to justify that tiny payment, right? So I really don't think um, they have really tried to sell it as cracking down on people more than they have actually cracked down on people, partly because the system is so brutal already. It's, it's quite difficult to make it worse at this point. How can people follow and support the work of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union um, and also the Anti-Poverty Centre? Yeah, we're both, we've got both organisations are on Twitter, which is kind of where our main communication happens. And I know not everyone uses Twitter, but the great thing about it is you don't have to log in to find information. So um, one really important thing for listeners in Victoria to know at the moment is that you don't have mutual obligations. So if you are usually having to go to a job agency or do job search, you don't need to. And that's the kind of information that we put out on those channels in addition to lots of commentary and political stuff. Um, we also have the AUW website is auwu.org.au. It's a very awkward acronym. Um, and people who are, in, who are unwaged um, can join as a member for free. It's, membership is free for everyone, but there are two types of membership. There are those of us who are either living in social security system or are not, but are unwaged. And then there is a solidarity membership for people who are wage workers who want to support the union either with a free membership or you can provide a donation as well. So the main thing I would say in terms of supporting our work really is um, supporting people who are living in the systems that uh, we all are and having conversations with people in your life about those systems and what's wrong with them and the fact that they absolutely have to change and that we need to demand of our politicians to do better. I do want to say thank you, Kristen, for coming onto the show. Yeah, this Thank has you been very really much. Good. Thank it's been you. great. Thanks. Yeah. It's been awesome to uh, chat, guys. We've been speaking to Kristen O'Connell from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and the Anti-Poverty Centre. Before we go, I wanted to just remind everybody that during the month of June, 3CR will be holding its annual radiothon. So the goal this year is to raise $250,000, which will go to keeping this amazing community station on air. We at Chronically Chilled are aiming to raise $650, so please mention our show if you are in a position to donate. And you can donate by visiting the 3CR website, and your support is very much appreciated. We'll be back next month, so until then, I want to thank Kristen again for coming onto the show, and also thank you for listening.